Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. So I grew up with uh, two sisters. I had an older sister and a younger sister. Uh, and I, I know that this might shock some of you, but I was the trouble child in my household growing up. <laughs> I know, shocking. Um, so I was the child that got spanked. Um, and sometimes it took like several iterations of me getting spanked for like one offense before I would start to repent at all. And, uh, and then my sisters, like, they, they basically would just get talked to. You know, like, they were the kids that, like, our parents would be like, we're disappointed in you, and they would just crumble. And I was always off to the side when that happened, just like, that's it? You're disappointed in them? Beat them! Come on, like, what are we doing? Right? It was, it was so frustrating because I, that didn't work on me. So for me, I didn't think that was, like, a valid punishment, right? I didn't realize, like, how much that hurt them. I don't think I still get that really. But, but what I realized as an adult is that I didn't always see what my parents were doing to discipline my sisters. And I didn't trust that my parents were doing anything when I couldn't see it or when it didn't look exactly how I wanted it to look. As soon as what they were doing didn't match what I wanted to see, or I didn't see it at all, immediately I didn't trust that they were handling it correctly. Often I couldn't see what they were doing because I was too busy getting in trouble myself. It's really hard to see what is happening with your sister when you're off in the other room getting your punishment. Right? I never, I never <laughs> held myself above the fray long enough to watch them actually get some kind of punishment. But either way, I didn't trust my parents to handle it when I couldn't see it or it wasn't done my way. We do this to God all the time. If we can't see what God is doing or he's just not handling it in the way that we want to see him handle it, all of a sudden we don't trust him. We can't trust him. We're in a series in the book of Numbers called uh, The Angry God. The angry God of the Old Testament. We're looking at this, this caricature of the one true God that he's just wrathful and mean and angry. So far in the series, Israel is just continually throwing fits in the wilderness. They're continually being disciplined and continuing to blame all their, prom- all their problems on God or on God's man, Moses. It's pretty much all they've done the whole book of Numbers. They've been on the plains of Jericho throwing a fit, and the story is about to take a detour. We're going to move away from these, uh, the plains that the Israelites are camping in, and we're going to go up into the mountains, and we're going to see God uh, talking with a wizard. Now, I, I use that term, and the, the reality is like there's different words for what Balaam is. He's a seer or he's a diviner. Um, there's a lot of debate about what those terms mean, what Balaam actually was. So we're going to call him a wizard because that's the coolest word for it. So there's this wizard in the mountains, and he's trying to curse Israel. And honestly, like if you have been with us through the series of numbers, and you haven't already heard something in the Bible that you're just like, this is in the Bible, like tonight's going to be that night, right? (laughs) This story is like, you're like, what is happening in numbers? This is a wild book, right? And what we're going to see is that God's power is not confined to the borders of Israel. God's power doesn't extend only as far as the Israelites can see it. See, God is actively doing things to protect his children way outside of what they can experience or know about, way beyond the borders of what they have control of or even think matters to them. God is still active. God is working even when they can't see it. See, God is always busy 
proclaiming his name. God is always busy making sure that he is known in every corner of creation. He is never without a witness. Jesus says, if I told these people to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Because even nature is testifying to who God is at every possible moment. Romans tells us the only reason we don't see it is because we are trying not to see it. There is no story in the Bible where God is left without a witness, without a testimony to himself. And it's interesting when we see who ends up testifying to who God is in different passages. Look at Numbers chapter 22, starting in verse 2. Now, I will tell you before, we, before I start reading this passage, uh, we're covering a lot of ground tonight, and we're not going to read every single verse. So I'll tell you where we are. Just keep up. We're going to cover the, the, the pertinent information for what we're talking about. And then I would encourage you to read the entire story. Because there's a lot here that we're not going to get to cover. So starting in chapter 22, verse 2. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will eat up all that is around us, as the ox eats up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the Euphrates River in the land of the sons of his people, to call for him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they, are covering the, they have covered the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for, for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed... And he whom you curse is cursed. So Balak, the king of Moab, he sees Israel and he's afraid. And he describes them uh, as numerous and mighty. He's describing both a military threat and an economic threat. We talk about immigration being a problem for an, e for an, uh, an economy. This is about the most massive migration that this king has ever seen, that his people have ever encountered. It's a people group so big they can't fight them out and so big that it's going to devastate the land that he's in. It's a real problem for this king. He looks up and not only that, but they have a reputation already. Why? Because this seemingly rabble of people defeated the greatest world power that they were held in slavery under and marched out as an army that had plundered Egypt. You don't think that spread near and far across the ancient world that people didn't know that that, had ha that that had occurred. This is a real fear that he is facing. And he creates an alliance with Midian. And he, he pulls out his ancient phone book and he flips to W for wizard, right? Because he's going to call up Balaam. Now, I want you to understand something about Balaam. Balaam, we have found extra biblical archaeological evidence that Balaam existed and was well known Right, was like basically famous and had solved some problems for some people already. So that's why this is the person that they are going to uh, go to very quickly. Um, there, this ancient evidence is not... I don't want you to scoff at this. See, what we do, we have this thing where we, we look at something like curses and blessings and an ancient seer and diviner, and we, we immediately write it off. It's all just... Hooey, this is a bunch of ancient, you know, you know, people in the ancient times, they believe this, but like, we don't believe this. This is like, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing, right? Okay, first of all, like, you need to check yourself on that, right? Because the reality is, this kind of stuff is still going on today. Here's, here's what it is. The enemy has essentially two tactics. He has a tactic of oppression, and he has a tactic of deception. And in our culture, where we rely so heavily on science, he he relies on the tactic of deception because it's much easier to come to us and say, the devil doesn't really exist. Demons aren't a real thing. Come on. That's a whole bunch of fairy tale nonsense, right? And he hides himself from us. Why? Because in warfare, if you don't know the enemy exists, you can't fight him. 
right? So he uses deception with us, but in a lot of places still to this day in the world and through a lot of human history, he used oppression. And oppression is a much more visible presence. It's a much more upfront and in-your-face tactic. And here's the thing, God tends to match that tactic. So when the enemy is trying to be oppressive, God is just as big in the other way. That's why we don't see some of the spiritual warfare that exists is because we're honestly too smart for that. Right? But when you read this story, I don't want you to see blessings and curses and go, well, they're paying this guy for nothing. It's all made up anyway. Right? This is something that has an effect. This is something that's going to matter to the people of Israel and to the people around them during this time period. This is not just made up nonsense. Let's look at verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian left with the fees for divination in their hands, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you, just as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come curse them for me, because uh, come curse them for me. Perhaps I will be able to fight against them and drive them out. But God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam got up in the morning and said to Balak's representatives, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So we see that there is that Balaam has this moment where he's going to talk to God. Now, first of all, they bring with them fees for divination. I want you to understand the way that people used to deal with God or with gods in the Old Testament, right? People in this time period essentially treated gods in one of two ways. They either tried to manipulate them to get what they wanted, so they tried to bribe gods and bring them sacrifices and offerings to get them to do what they wanted, or they tried to bring them sacrifices and offerings to get them off of their back, right? The goal was either maybe I can finagle a blessing out of this God, or maybe I can get this God to stop cursing me. And if we're honest, we kind of treat God that way now, right? We, we go to God in our prayers, and really our prayer time is just about convincing God to do what I already want him to do, or get him to stop this bad thing that's happening to me that he probably caused, Right? That's how we think about it, and that's how we go to God. And so they, are, they brought these fees for divination. They're going to manipulate God. So Balaam, he goes, and he's going to go meet with God. Now, I want you to understand something. It's really confusing because he says, well, I'll go, I'll go you spend the night, and I'll go talk to God, and he'll let me know what he's going to say. And you're like, so he knows God? He's a believer? I don't understand what's going on. Well, the first thing I want you to understand is everybody in this time period knew who God was, right? This is something we miss because we live in a culture where people are constantly telling you that there's no God at all. This is way too close to creation in human history. People are very aware of who God is, right? Now, they have chosen to worship idols, to worship false gods, to, to create temples for their own ways and their own cultures, but nobody's just unaware, this is not a time period where God's reputation has become, he's, he's a myth, right? That's not a thing at this point. Everybody knows who God is. So Balaam does what a diviner, what a sorcerer would do in this time period. He stays up at night to practice his divination, to call on this God and to have an audience with him, right? He's going to see if he can convince this God to let him curse these people in, 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 and actually that will work, right? So he's going to manipulate this God. And then the question becomes this, why does God show up, right? This is, like a, this is a weird scene, right? Because it looks a little bit like this guy has some kind of existing relationship with the Lord, okay? I want you to understand that's not what's happening, all right? If you seek God, God will come. God wants to come. He wants to make himself known. So in this moment, you got a guy seeking the one true God. He goes before God and he asks for an audience and he gets one because God is interested in making himself known. So he does come and talk to Balaam. 
God wants to be known. But what do we already know about blessings and curses as they relate to Israel? If you're in the college class, you've already heard several times that God has promised to the Israelites in Genesis, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So God has already set the tone for how this is going to go. Balaam is really just checking in. He doesn't know everything. He's checking on the status. He's like, is this a people group I can get away with cursing? Is this a people group that that's going to be effective? And why does he call on their God? Well, because he needs to see, is their God a God he can bribe into rejecting them, into cursing them? So he goes before God, and God says, no, you can't curse them because they are blessed. I want you to notice that he skips that report in the morning. He comes out and he says, well, God's refused to let me go with you, right? He doesn't tell them why he can't go. He doesn't tell them why it will be ineffective. He just says, well, their God said I can't go, right? So they head back, and I want you to see something. They're, they're going to go all the way back to Balak, and then we're, they're going to come all the way back to Balaam, right? And based on the geographic locations, this is probably four months of total traveling, right? Four months. This is a huge journey. They are really committed to getting this guy to come with them, right? So look at verse 17. So Balak has sent them back, and they go back with this message. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you tell me. Please come then, curse this people for me. But Balaam replied to the servants of, of, of Balak, even if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them. But you shall do only the things, the thing that I tell you. So Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. Okay. So, first of all, this phrase. I want to zone right into verse 18, the Lord my God. Again, if you were just to read this, everyone does it, right? If you just read this passage on your own, you will think, especially as we get further into this, that, Bal that Balaam is a good guy. You will think, th this guy's on God's side, right? Okay. We're going to see in a minute why that's not true, but let's talk about that phrase, the Lord my God. That's like when somebody who doesn't believe in anything or go to church ever says, God bless you, right? It's a turn of phrase. It's a common phrase. He's basically just referring to the Lord my God. It would be like saying, you know, the Israelites God. They call him the Lord my God, right? So he's referring to him by a common name, and he's saying, well, I'll go check in with him again. But I can't do anything if this God won't budge. If he won't let me curse them, then I, it doesn't matter how much gold or silver you give me because I won't be able to come. And so he goes before God, and God tells him to go. Now, I want you to see just verse 22. But God was angry that he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the road as an adversary against him. Now, he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Okay, God just told him to go, verse 20, 20 and 21. And then 22, it says God's mad at him for going, okay? This is probably one of the most confusing moments in the whole Bible, okay? There's, there's a few like this, and we're just like, I, well, I don't understand. Back-to-back -back verses, and God says go, and is angry at him for going, okay? So we have to look into this. God looks at the heart. God looks deeper than just your actions, okay? God is not angry at him for going. Balaam thinks that this God just changed his mind. Now, once you understand something, God doesn't change his mind. That's not what happened. The first time, the answer was no. This is now a new time. This is the second time. The answer is now go and do what I tell you to do. But in Balaam's mind, he says, well, he said no, and now he's saying yes, so maybe when I get there, I can convince him to let me curse them, right? He has set out on what is going to be his get-rich-quick scheme. He's on his way because he's going to figure out how to get this God to let him earn all this gold and silver. He's going to manipulate this God into doing what he wants him to do. So he has set out to manipulate God and get rich, and God is going to oppose him. 
See, God is angry because he is able to see what is going on in Balaam's heart, what is going on in his mind. Look at verse 23. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to guide her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a stone wall on his side, uh, on this side and on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry, and he struck his, he struck his donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, It is because you have made a mockery of me. If only there had been a sword in my hand, for I would have killed you by now. But the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been in the habit of doing such a thing to you? And he said, No. Okay, it's honestly hard to know what to dress first in this portion. Like, <laughs> the angel of the Lord or the talking donkey, right? There's a lot going on. Um, but we're going to start with the angel of the Lord. Okay, so the angel of the Lord, I, I, I want you to understand... I always go through this when we talk about the angel of the Lord. There are three potential options, and uh, the bottom line is it doesn't matter, right? And I'll explain why. The three options are, this could be an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, right? It could be uh, what we call pre-incarnate, so pre-Jesus coming in the New Testament, appearance of Jesus Christ. It could be God himself manifesting in a form uh, of an angel, something that could allow humans to interact with him, to focus on him in a way uh, wouldn't be you know the raw face of God because we can't see that in our sinful states, right? Or it could be an emissary, an actual angel or ambassador, because in those times, uh, when an ambassador came from a king, it was that ambassador would speak in the first person as though they were the king. They were delegated all of the authority from the king that they were sent by. Okay, now here's why it doesn't matter. Because we don't know, ultimately, which of those three options it is. And the reason it doesn't matter is because whichever one of those options it is, this person, this being, is acting with the authority of God personally, as though God is there. So whether it's an ambassador or God himself, we're going to treat it like it's God himself. Because that is the authority that this angel of the Lord has placed upon him as he enters this situation. So this person is speaking for the Lord. This is what opposing the proud looks like. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, and it's not a vanilla statement. It is the picture of God himself with a sword drawn, ready to go to war. This is not something that you're going to overcome, that you're going to push hard, hard enough up against and kind of move out of your way. This is a deadly and violent opposition. This is the picture of God coming face to face with his enemy. And I want you to see that there are three iterations here of what happened. These iterations are the exact same of how God gets our attention in our lives. See, the first thing that happens is that his donkey sees the angel of the Lord and veers off the path. What happens when you are not doing what God wants you to do? The first phase of discipline is that things are, start to get inconvenient. The first thing that happens is your life starts to derail a little bit. It's really annoying. It's designed to get your attention. You should, in that moment, go, man, maybe I'm not doing the right thing here, as your life derails, right? But what, what do we do instead? We lash out in anger. We go, well, this, this is stupid. Why is this happening? Right? So Balaam strikes his donkey, and they get back on the path. Then the second iteration is that the donkey smashes his foot against the wall, because what's the second phase? Discipline starts to get a little painful, starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. It's designed again to get your attention. It's God giving you another chance, giving you a little bit harder hit, saying, hey, wake up. You're doing the wrong thing. You're going directly against me. See, why is this merciful? Because God gives Balaam so many chances not to come face first 
with the angel of the Lord, which is not going to be a good thing for him. And the third iteration, the donkey literally lays down under him. It gets embarrassing. See, here's the thing. When you ignore God long enough, discipline will halt your life. It will get downright embarrassing. And if you've ever been embarrassing, that's about when you get as angry as you can be as well. Right? So in this moment, Balaam is embarrassed. His life has literally come to a grinding halt. And what does he do? He starts lashing out at the donkey. Right? He doesn't look around. He doesn't say, what's God up to? Why is this happening? Maybe I'm doing something wrong here. He just attacks the circumstances. It's everything's fault but his. It has to be. And that's how we treat our lives when they come to a screeching halt. We feel stupid. We feel ashamed. So we lash out. I want you to see that the text goes out of its way here to let you know that the donkey is female. Right? So let's talk about that for a second. Donkeys are considered the dumbest animal in the Bible. Automatically. And because it's ancient times, women aren't exactly exalted either. And so what the text is trying to do is say, Balaam is so stupid that his female donkey knows what's going on and he doesn't. That's literally what the writer is trying to scream at you right now. Again, this was written a long time ago, but that's the culture, okay? So we know that this is supposed to be this dumb animal, and Balaam is so unaware of God's will that the donkey sees what God is doing first. Look at verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. Then the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was reckless and contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I certainly would have killed you just now and let her live. So Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went along with the representatives of Balak. God gave, gave Balaam three chances to turn back, and he literally says, I was about to kill you. I was about to kill you and let your donkey live. See, this is a picture of opposition to the Lord. This is what it is when we grind away at sinful lifestyles, intentionally rebelling against the Lord. This is what the world is doing all the time. And God lets their lives be inconvenient, and He lets their lives be painful, and He lets them be embarrassing. And if they continue to grind against him someday, someday he opposes them with real justified violence. That is what God does when he opposes the proud. Now in this moment, God has established his authority, right? See, this is why I tell you that Balaam's not a good guy. When you go the rest of the story and you see all the things Balaam is saying that it will tell you over and over again, God put this words in his mouth. God put these words in his mouth. The thing you've got to think about is Balaam's going to keep looking at Balak and going, I can't say anything else. And what he doesn't say is, because he's going to kill me. Right? But God has pretty much established, this is, you got one option. Step out of line, and I'm going to end it for you. Right? He's established that he is in total control. And I don't care how great of a seer or diviner or, or sorcerer this man is, he cannot take on the angel of the Lord. He has no chance in this situation, and he is well aware of it. Are you determined to live your life your way? Are you so determined to live your life your way that you're completely unaware of what God's doing? That you're completely missing what God is up to in your life and in the lives of the people around you? Are you grinding away at sin in opposition to God? 
when your life derails, or there's pain, or there's embarrassment, do you think for one second, maybe I need to see what God is up to. Maybe I need to turn back. Maybe I need to find the Lord. Because he's giving me chances to come back to him, to be on his side, not to be in opposition to him. God proves his power in the word and in our lives. Look at verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send word to call, to call for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? See, Balak is... Balak thinks that he can honor Balaam more than God can. Or he thinks that he can honor Balaam in a way that will measure up to God wiping him out. See, Balak is the, is the real opposition in this story because he is the one that is defying God and thinks that he has the ability to give to Balaam on an equal level from what God can give or what God can take away. He is the one instigating this problem. And Balaam makes a, a, actually a wise choice in this story. What we're told in Matthew 10, 28 is, And do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, in this moment, Balaam understands he has an almost Damascus Road-like experience with God, and he understands that there is not another option but to obey. And he can't do what Balak is telling him to do. Look at verse 41. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. And he saw from there a portion of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken and Balak uh, and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside the burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. So I want you to see, first of all, that all of this is divination tactics. Everything they're doing here is to appease or manipulate the spirit that they're going to engage. Right? This is, this is like classic... Uh, job description for, for Balaam right here. This is exactly how he does things. He sets up his altars. He offers up his sacrifices. He goes up to the high places because they believed that the high places were how you got closer to the gods. And he is going to engage God on all the, all the terms that he can get an advantage. He's going to manipulate God's uh, way here, right? So he moves up into this high place. He sets up uh, to, to get this blessing. And then he's going to speak the first oracle. So there's several oracles that he's going to speak in this passage. And the first one, uh, it says, God puts the words in his mouth, and it starts in verse 7. And he took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east, saying, Come, declare Jacob cursed for me, and come, curse Israel. How am I to put a curse on him upon whom God has not put a curse? And how am I to curse him who the Lord has not cursed? For I see from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills. Behold, a people that lives in isolation and does not consider itself to be among the nations. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Israel? May I die the death of the upright, and may my end be like his. What does Balaam do here? The words that God puts in his mouth essentially just reaffirm God's promises to Israel. Balaam, an enemy to the Lord, who is in this moment scared to death, is actually speaking on God's behalf, testifying to God's might and God's power, and declaring God's promises to the people of Israel. Now I want you to see something. It says that he could only see a portion of the people. So this blessing is going out over a smaller group. It's not going out over the whole nation. He's, I mean, he's speaking about the whole nation, but he's essentially blessing the ones that he can see from this high place. Look at verse 11. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? 
I took you to put a curse on my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. He replied, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them, and put a curse on them for me from there. So Balak, once you see, he reacts the same way to Balaam that Balaam reacted to his donkey. See, things have started to derail for Balak. Instead of getting the curse he paid for, he gets a blessing on his enemies. So he lashes out in anger. He's following the exact same cycle, and he's being given the exact same chances to notice what God is up to. But he doesn't see what God is up to, and instead he does the same thing that Balaam did, and he doubles down. He makes it everybody else's problem, and he, see, he says, let's go to a new site. We'll set up new sacrifices, and you can see more of them from there. Right Now, here's what's going to happen. Because of Balak's persistence, a greater and greater number of the people of Israel are going to be blessed. He literally is forcing Balaam to bless more and more of God's children. That's the only thing that he's going to accomplish here. Look at verse 18. Then he took up, a, up his discourse and said, Arise, Balak, and hear, listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, I cannot revoke it. He has not looked at misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and a joyful shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He, he is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no magic curse against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time... It shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and like a lion it raises itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of those slain. I want you to see verse 19 there. Verse 19 is, if I was ever going to recommend a verse for you to memorize, this is one of the best ones. 2319. I'm going to read it again. God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he would change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? I want you guys to understand something. We spend so much time asking what God's will is. And he's laid it out for us, painstakingly, in this book, for us to, to have and to understand and to grasp and all you need to understand as you read it is that God doesn't lie. Has he said and will he not do it? God has told us in this book that he will redeem, that he will save, that he will bring us into a new land where we will be with him forever. And he does not lie. Are you living a life that actually believes what you read in this book? Are you actually reading this book? You have to be in it, and you have to believe it. In verse 22, he says, God has proven his power by taking them out of Egypt. In verse 24, he, he compares them to a lion. He says there's no magic, no spell, no curse that can come against the people that God has blessed. God has proven his reputation by bringing them out of Egypt. These people are like a lioness. Look at, look at uh, 25. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam replied to Balak, Did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks to me I must do? Then Balak said to Balaam, Please, come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. He's literally doing the exact same thing that Balaam did to his donkey, right? He's lashing out again. See, the first time, things were a little derailed, but he said, oh, let's go over here. And the second time, now it's painful. And he literally says, 
Don't bless, don't curse them or bless them. Don't say anything, right? See, this is the part where we look at God and we go, if you're not going to do it my way, don't do anything at all. That's the message here. He says, no, I want it a certain way. I've already determined how this is going to go. And he's not going to accept anything else. Again, he's ignoring his chance to say, what's God up to here? And instead he's saying, no, I want it this way. I want it to be done for me the way that I want it done. And Balak still thinks he is the one that's powerful in this situation. He's the one that can make it happen. He lashes out just like Balaam lashed out at his donkey. Here's the thing. Most of us don't want to admit this, but it's actually not a problem. Like We, we don't want our life to be decided by God. And, and for, for a lot of us, the problem is not actually that we don't think God will do what he promised. It's that we think God will do what he promised and we don't want that. See, the problem is we look at God's will and we decide, eh, I, I kind of have a better idea. I want something different than that. And we're afraid that when God follows through with what he said he will do, we'll hate it. You have to understand, like, you do not have a better plan than God. You do not even understand what will fulfill you the way that God understands what will fulfill you. Is your life, when you are calling the shots, going so well that you really want to keep that up? I called the shots in my life for a long time, and I was miserable. I never want to call the shots in my life again. It's the worst experience I could have. God let me do it. Things derailed for a while. Then they hurt. And then they were downright embarrassing. And my life came to a screeching halt. I don't want to live that life. So Balak takes him to another spot. And now he can see everyone. He can see the whole desert. He's He's again going to bless an even greater portion of God's children. By the efforts of God's enemies, God's children are being blessed. How do we learn to trust God? He builds credibility with us. How do you learn to trust anybody? They follow through on what they say they will do. Here's the thing. God has already started you off with a head start. He gave you a book of all the times he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And then he begins to do that in your life. He begins to show you that he will do what he said he will do. And here's the thing. Why does God do that for us at all? Because he's showing us that he will do the biggest thing he said he will do, which is save us. Look at chapter 24, starting in verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as the other times to seek omens. Rather, he turned his attention toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Look at this. Balaam understands God's will and doesn't even bother asking. He just obeys. He just moves out to glorify God and to praise God with what he's doing. What's God's will? God won't answer my prayers. I can't hear from God, right? That's like our constant problem is we don't think that God is telling us what he wants from us. We already have God's will. He's called us to glorify him, to love him, and to worship him. Balaam's not even on God's team, but he's figured out what the will of God is in this moment, and he's following it. He's obeying it. Look at verse 3. This is the third oracle. Then he took up his discourse and said, The declaration of Balaam, the son of Baor, and the declaration of the man whose eye is opened. The declaration of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How pleasant are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones and smash them with his arrows. He crouches. He lies down like a lion. 
And like a lioness who dares to rouse him, blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Verse 7, he is talking about the seed, the king, and his kingdom. Verse 8, he says, not God brought them out of Egypt, but God brings him out of Egypt. In verse 9, he says, he is a lion, like the lion of Judah. See, here's what just happened. We just transitioned from talking about God's actions and provisions in the past to talking about God's actions and provision for the future. Balaam in this moment is no longer talking about Israel at large. He's talking about the Messiah, the seed, the Lion of Judah. See, what do we know about Jesus? He came out of Egypt. He crushes the head of his enemies. He is the lion. See, in this moment, Balaam is seeing the truth of the redemption that God has promised Israel. He is prophesying of God's righteousness. This enemy of God is standing over the people of Israel and he's saying, through you, someday, God will bless all the families of the earth. The same thing that he told the patriarchs. The same thing that Israel has been hearing every single step of the way. And here's the thing. Israel's not seeing this. They are in the valley throwing fits. They are completely missing what's happening. God is busy blessing them and defending them. And they have absolutely no idea. Guys, the angry God of the Old Testament has been promising a Messiah on every page. He's been pointing to the mercy that he's going to bring about. And in this moment, he was merciful even with Israel's enemies and by their very mouths declared the truth that he was going to conquer sin and death and save all of humanity. Redeem us to himself. Look at verse 10. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. So flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord held you back from honor. See, Balak is still doubling down. He just heard, by the way, the prophecy of redemption, the thing that Abraham had faith on, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That exact same phrase that Abram believed on and followed and, and was the patriarch because of, Balak just heard that phrase and said, I don't want that. I told you to curse him. He has defied God and turned against him. He has said, I don't want the Messiah. I don't want redemption. I don't want that God to prosper or that nation to prosper. Right? That's the attitude of the world towards us. And in your life, while you're actively not following the will of God in the, in the valley, you're actively not worshiping or obeying or being in the presence of the Lord the way you're supposed to be, the world is trying to kill you and God is aggressively stopping them. He is opposing them like an adversary. He is drawing his sword on your behalf and saying, no, I have blessed them. I have promised to save them. See, here's the thing. We, we aren't legalists. We don't walk around and follow all the rules of the Bible because, because well, we got you know, to do all the things and be nice and put your tie on and just you know, make sure that you're a nice, polite member of society. That's not the point. The point is, the God of all the universe has drawn his sword on your behalf. What are you going to, you're not going to follow him because of that? You're not going to see the fact that he is defending you from things that you can't overcome, that he is saving you from even yourself, and you're not going to turn around and say, God, whatever it takes, I'm in your team. I am following you. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. See, we don't follow God out of legalism, it's a reaction. You look at what God is doing, what he's saving you from, and you can't 
help it. Because you're either Balak or you're Abraham. They both heard the same gospel. They heard the same message. And one of them said, I don't want that. Are you focusing on God's promise to save you? Are you just angry because God's not handling things the way you want him to handle it? The rest of the chapter goes on and Balaam ends up cursing all the enemies of Israel. Literally the exact opposite of the outcome Balak wanted. Guys, I, I don't know, I really don't know why Balaam doesn't flinch when his donkey talks to him. That's like the one thing in the chapter I can't figure out. Like this donkey starts talking to him and he just has a conversation with his donkey. That blows my mind. I can't tell you why that happens. Here's what I do know. The donkey is the only person in the story paying attention to what God is doing, including the Israelites. The donkey is the only person who knows what God is up to. I don't want to spend my life missing out on the blatant, amazing will of God and, and a, basically being dumber than a donkey. Before the end of Numbers, Balaam dies. The Israelites kill him. That's coming. That's what, that's what he goes on to do and get for his actions, right? My question for you, I, I don't think this is a room full of people who are Balaam's and Balak's. But when you're in the valley, do you understand that you can't see all the ways that God is taking care of you? Do you actually believe that? Do you trust that? Do you live on that? Or are you just throwing fits in the valley? They are, by the way, like one stop away from entering the promised land finally. And, and all they're doing is bickering and rebelling. Let's be the kind of people that spend our time praising the Lord and following him because even if we can't see it, he has said he will redeem us and he does not lie. This is Matt O'Mealy, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that is defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, Please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.